Kia ora koutou. Welcome back to Aotearoa Unearthed, a podcast about New Zealand archaeology. I'm your host, Rosemary, and I haven't done any new episodes for ages, so I'm very pleased that finally I'm doing two new ones in early 2023, both on maritime archaeology. I think most of us are pretty intrigued by this idea of shipwrecks and sunken treasure. And so today I'm going to be talking to Kurt Bennett, who is a colleague of mine at Heritage New Zealand, Pohiri Tonga, but also a trained maritime archaeologist and very good diver. And I'm going to ask him about how he got into this field, but about the history and the state of maritime archaeology in New Zealand. And then he's going to give us some stories about interesting dives he's done at wrecks around New Zealand, particularly in Fiordland. So let's get started. Hi Kurt, thank you so much for doing this podcast on maritime archaeology and I know we were chatting just before about the difference in naming between marine archaeology and maritime archaeology so could you just explain what the different types of underwater archaeology are? Sure thing, first up, yeah hi Rosemary and thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah to answer your question a lot of people tend to just use marine archaeology to describe our discipline sort of in more recent times, people will say maritime, and that being marine defines saltwater bodies, and maritime archaeologists aren't necessarily restricted to studying sites in marine environments or saltwater. So think more freshwater, rivers, lakes, that kind of thing. So that's why we say maritime archaeology, because it includes both a saltwater and freshwater environments. And then you were saying that shipwrecks are another type of... Yeah, yeah. shipwrecks is more defined under nautical archaeology, so a sort of subset of maritime archaeology. It's just a way of putting the label on a specific study. Oh, well, thank you for defining that. I know I was mixing them up incorrectly. <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> now we've sorted that out. Perhaps you could tell me a bit about yourself and how you got into this discipline. Yep, born and bred in Auckland and spent childhood going out fishing, diving, exploring the Hauraki Gulf and sort of spend my spare time also looking through my dad's shipwreck book collection. I would go out visit shipwreck sites around the Hauraki Gulf. I think that planted a seed really in the back of my mind to say that I have a passion for the marine environment but also our maritime history. So when it came to deciding on what to do after high school. I actually typed into Google history and diving being my two passions. And thank you to Google for producing maritime archaeology. (laughs) So I did a bit more reading, liked the sound of it, and then researched universities that offered courses in maritime archaeology. Found two, I was actually tossing up between Flinders University and Edinburgh University in Scotland and I figured I would choose Flinders because it was closer to home. And I can imagine diving would be a bit warmer in Australia than Edinburgh. (laughs) Oh yes, yes, compared to the two but I must say Adelaide can get reasonably cold just because you've got the, the Southern Ocean coming straight in. And so what did you study at Adelaide? Yeah, I knew I wanted to go into the maritime program. So I did a Bachelor of Archaeology and then straight into my Master's Maritime Archaeology. So tell me about your thesis. Yeah, so with that, being away from New Zealand, I was very conscious to always study or research New Zealand-based sites because I knew that I'd return and I wanted to be familiar with maritime sites and heritage 
in New Zealand. So up came my time to choose a thesis topic. And I remember having a conversation with my dad one night and he said, oh, did you know there's a, a ship's graveyard on Rangitoto Island? I was like, oh, no, no, I didn't actually. <laughs> <laughs> so the next day I just, I hooned out there, had a look. There's an interpretation panel. There's 13 vessels in the vicinity of Boulder Bay and Wreck Bay, as it's commonly known now. And I was just blown away. I thought, I can't believe I sort of missed this. So I was walking back, trying to develop some research questions. And then on my walk back, there's a lot of batches. And I started thinking, when when were these built? So I started researching into that when I got back home. And I found that the two, so the ship's graveyard and the batch communities, sort of happened around the same time. So out of that, my research question focused on how the batch communities interacted with the ship's graveyard. and while the ship being discarded was seen as obsolete, it now became useful to the batch communities, which were resourceful. It was during times of depression and economic hardship that people would just scavenge other bits of building materials. And the beautiful thing about it is that that's why we have such a vernacular architecture out there. Every batch is different. Found some archaeological connections there. One batch used a ship's door. When we went and had a look at the door, it was angled so it would fit the camber of the decking of the ship. You'd fit the door to the ship. I also conducted oral histories too with the batch community. Got some great stories out of them as well and also a couple of fishing spots. So that was a little bonus. Now, I didn't introduce you as a doctor, but you are actually a doctor with a PhD in maritime archaeology. So I'm wondering if you could now tell me about what you studied for your doctorate. I started in 2016 and I went back to Flinders University to do my PhD there. And again, I wanted to have my research focused on New Zealand-based sites. I wanted to research how colonial shipwrights arriving in New Zealand adapted to the local environment and whether that then influenced design. As I was looking for case studies, I found that not many had actually been found. So I rejigged it to look at British colonial ships. Three primary case studies, the first being the HMS Buffalo in Fitianga, the second being Edwin Fox in Picton, and the third being the Endeavour in Dusky Sound, not to be confused with Captain Cook's Endeavour. What they sort of illustrated, they're all constructed around about 40 years apart. And so you had the Endeavour constructed in England, and then you had HMS Buffalo in India, and then Edwin Fox in India. Then I was doing a sort of comparison between the three of them, design, features, technologies, use of material. And then so how did these shipwrights, travelling to a foreign nation, adapt to local resources? Were they including local shipbuilding techniques? Well, in the interests of time, we'll leave listeners to look up your PhD thesis themselves if they want to know more about colonial shipbuilding. Let's move on to the methods of maritime archaeology. How do you practice it? Sure. It will depend on the site type, but for sake of describing it, let's pick an underwater site being a shipwreck. We actually do use relatively similar techniques to terrestrial archaeology, just tape measures instead of paper at recording sheets we'll put it onto a dive slate which is waterproof we'll be recording length breadth any features that we might see and making notes so instead of walking around the site we'll just be swimming 
I guess the real difference is the scuba gear that we use to breathe underwater, but we do still use similar methodologies. And that being, we could do baseline offset, so that's where you're sort of working in pairs with tape measures, very simple measuring to survey the extent of the site, the measurements that you pull out of that, you come back, you plot up on a piece of paper, and it's kind of like joining the dots, and that's where you might see a nice sort of site plan of a shipwreck. Others, you could do triangulation, which is working from three measurements to one point. And then also recently, we've got the introduction of photogrammetry, which is the use of cameras. So we take series of photos underwater and then put all these photos into the software and it stitches it all together and creates a a three-dimensional model. And then from there, it's a case of understanding what we have as an archaeological resource and then potentially developing some research questions from there to go back and investigate. And then we could target an area that we want to excavate. And so we use underwater dredges to suck out the sand, but of course, all in a controlled way where we'd be gridding the site, like of the artifacts or the hull structure that we might be recording. And then from there, it all aids our interpretation. Mm. And I know this is stating the obvious, but there's going to be more time constraints and maybe dangers like (laughs) diving underwater how does that affect what you're doing yeah there's quite a few variables some out of your control some within if a storm brews up then there's obviously no diving we're sort of at the mercy of the weather when we do our work but equally too we're in an environment that humans aren't designed for so fortunately we've got technology to help us breathe underwater and that does restrict our time especially if you're on scuba So you just think of a tank on your back. You've only got so much time as you do air in your tank. I won't get into too heavy medical (laughs) details, but there's other physiological things to consider too. So like nitrogen buildup. So that's where you'll hear divers planning, potentially dive times, bottom times, and then they'll off gas. They'll have intervals between dives if they're doing multiple ones during the day. So there's there's actually a lot of pre-planning that goes into diving on an underwater archaeological site. We have this section called show and tell and I know that you have been on a couple of amazing trips around Fiordland where you've done maritime archaeology in 2020 and 2021 so I'm wondering if you could tell me about those trips to Fiordland and what type of archaeology you were doing. Yeah uh, Fiordland what a place it's just incredible pristine natural environment but also has a remarkable history and it's a place that is extremely remote and not many people get to go there and experience it. Very fortunate to be invited by the Toitu Settlers Museum in 2020 and of course the height of the pandemic but fortunately we came out of the red and it was around July 2020 that we went in. Not great timing in terms of being middle of winter too in the deep south, pretty chilly. It just worked out really that tourism had a big blow to the industry and so here we were willing to jump on board and help out some locals too at the same time. The main aim of the trip was to create a short documentary series for the Settlers Museum and visit all these historic sites. We set out, I think it was about maybe eight of us in the team, so a documentary team from Toitu, someone from Heritage New Zealand, Naitahu and it was two maritime archaeologists, myself and Matt Carter. We visited quite a few sites and then 
more specific to to Matt and I, we did some underwater archaeological surveys of various sites. So these included Pickersgill Harbour, where Captain Cook came in after his voyage around the deep south, spent some time doing some repairs on the ship, give his crew some time on land. They set up an observatory. Matt and I, we did a quick survey of Pickersgill Harbour because we knew that the ship was moored up there. We're looking for any sort of evidence that might be on the seafloor. We didn't find anything definitive, but we did find some cultural artefacts, and so think bottles, possibly a shaped timber. And then we went to the Endeavour site, not Cook's Endeavour, <laughs> another one, but a shipwreck that came in from Sydney. It was very much at the end of its working life. It was leaking like a sieve, and they brought it into Facile Harbour, pulled it ashore, and it really just settled on the bottom. And after a quick survey, they realised that they couldn't repair it, so it just abandoned it on site and then set about sending out a rescue mission. This was sort of a dream come true, really, because I'd studied it for my PhD, and while I didn't go to the site because it was the cost of getting there, but here I am, 2020, actually on site, looking at the shipwreck, and it was amazing. Through my research for the PhD, You'd hear through various channels of divers and people who had visited the place that, oh, there's nothing much there. You won't see anything. It's in such and such depth of water. There's no point going. You know, quite negative (laughs) towards the site. But when Matt and I went, we were just blown away because it's in really good condition. It's in a sheltered bay. The preservation, I would say, is fairly amazing for the age of that shipwreck. It's got frames sticking up from through the bottom of the seafloor, and then in the middle you've just got a pile of rocks, but that's the ballast, so it's part of the ship. So these ships will be ballasted for sailing in the open sea. You've got all this rock, then there's going to be a hull structure preserved under there, and then potentially artefacts. And this is New Zealand's earliest European shipwreck, so it is really significant for this country. Yeah, so here we are diving on it, and it was actually a dream come true for both of us, really. There we were, fist pumping after our dive, just absolutely stoked. But meanwhile, all the hail and rain that we're diving in, so (laughs) quite funny, actually, yeah, just leaving the boat and then getting hit with hail, and both Matt and I looking at each other thinking, what are we doing? But uh, no, the dive was worth it. We surveyed it. We did some photogrammetry, so there's a 3D model that's publicly available online. So it's all about just bringing these sites to the people that don't necessarily get to go there. So that was really, really awesome. And did you see any other shipwrecks or do any other exploration on that first trip to Fiordland? The third site that we dived on was the SS Waikare, which was a 1910s steamer. And it's described as the most jolliest shipwreck (laughs) (laughs) because they supposedly hit a rock that no one has actually identified <laughs> so whether it might have been a little insurance job we're not sure but anyway it hit a rock got a hole in it started sinking deployed the lifeboats got everyone off and the captain ran it ashore up onto believe it or not stop island <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah ran it up there and got a lot of the furniture off i think there's an image of a piano been brought off so they they set up a nice little camp on the island and overnight they just sort of watched the ship fall off its perch and rest on the bottom so it's in about 30 meters of water and a beautiful dive site 
clear blue water. I think we had about 20 metres of vis at that time. Amazing marine life and just this mangled wreck now because it is breaking down. But something of that size, I really got an appreciation for iron or steel shipwreck sites. My specialty is dealing with wooden shipwrecks. And I remember just sort of floating in front of the boiler and thinking, this thing is massive. You see photos of these ships, but you don't actually necessarily appreciate the size of them, the amount of energy they required to power them, the personnel required to drive them. Yes, we were diving around that and did a quick survey. And again, first time it's been surveyed. It is recorded on New Zealand Archaeology's archaeological database, ArcSite, but it's been recorded from historical records. So no one had actually dived on it. So we took some basic measurements, some observations that will just feed into understanding what is there, how the site is in terms of its condition, and again, just providing that baseline data. Do you want to talk about the second trip that you did to Fiordland? Because I know that you surveyed yet more sites when you went back. Yeah, the first trip, that was Dusky Sound. And the second trip was organised again by Toitu Settlers Museum to go down to Chalky Inlet, which is a bit further south. And there again, just fascinating history, a lot of historic sites, a lot of archaeological sites. And I conducted two underwater surveys for two archaeological sites. One being the Cuddle Cove whaling station. It's one of the very earliest shore-based whaling stations in New Zealand. So 1829 to 1836 it operated. And apparently it was very successful until basically they depleted all the whale stock. It is a recorded archaeological site. It has had a few visits, but no detailed survey of the whaling station itself. It actually developed into a gold mining smallish town or village in the late 19th century and that's been surveyed but not the shore-based whaling station and my role there was to conduct an underwater survey so I set up some transects from the beach in an area that I thought would have potential. Sorry what's a transect? A transect is a line that would be on a known bearing it's a way to control the survey so I would swim one way around the line and then another way around the back. And that way I can still plot it on a map or a plan. And I know then I've covered that area. And I actually did three of them. Covered an area about 50 metres by 45, I think it was. I was helped out by one of the crew from Fiordland Expeditions. Gave him a quick training course on what to look for and helped me out moving tapes and measuring. We'd swim the transect and if we found anything, take offsets and just get that data that we could then plot what the artifacts were. In short, I didn't find anything that was associated with the whaling station, but perhaps later with the gold mining. But on saying that, it's not to say that there isn't anything else in the bay. I covered a very small area. It was just the time that I had to do it. It would be a great master's project, I reckon. Get someone out there for a couple of weeks, as long as you can put up with the sand flies, which are horrendous. The second site that we went to was Tioniroa Gold Mining Settlement, and again in Preservation Inlet, basically directly south of Cuddle Cove. It was a gold mining settlement set up during the 1890s, and with that there was a wharf constructed to bring goods ashore and then ship the gold off. So there's not much left of the wharf itself now. There's a couple of piles on the shore. I ran, again, a transect out on a known bearing following the line of the jetty, and prior research told me the length of the jetty the kind of shape it was. 
knowing that, I knew how far to run the tape on the bearing, two divers swimming up one side and then round the other, noting what was seen, doing a baseline offset method to plot these artefacts, and also went back and then took photos of all the artefacts. And what we found there was a mixture of 19th and 20th century material, so to do with the settlement, but also people visiting later on. So sunglasses, there was a fishing reel, a mooring block. And this is an interesting thing too, is that we've got to be mindful of these underwater sites, people visiting, because think, if you drop an anchor, you're potentially destroying that underwater site, that archaeological site. And by putting a mooring block down, you're potentially, again, modifying or destroying this archaeological site. So it's important that these surveys, it's not just about understanding the types of material down there, but the footprint, the extent of these sites. And then based on that, it should hopefully feed into future management decisions around how do you manage visitors to that site? Perhaps they should be thinking about putting permanent moorings in, having archaeologists go in, clear an area on the seafloor, put in a concrete block there, it won't damage a known site. We often have a section called Digging Deep, which is perhaps a bit more theoretical. What I'd like to know is a bit more about the state of maritime archaeology in New Zealand, um, because just from you talking, it sounds like a lot of these sites, you're the first archaeologist surveying them, so that suggests there's not very much being done. No, there hasn't been much done. It's, it's a relatively new discipline globally, and it really came about in the 50s and 60s after the invention of the underwater breathing apparatus, so scuba. There was a little bit done around the turn of the 20th century with hard hat diving, people exploring shipwrecks, cranogs in Scotland. But really having that freedom, that independence with a tank on your back just opened up a whole bunch of sites to a lot of people. And it was sort of a time when people would interact with sites more with the mind frame of treasure hunting, collecting antiques. But then there were others that actually recognised, hang on, like some of these sites are incredibly important and rare. They will be able to tell us about the past in so many different ways and they're fragile and finite. So that's how maritime archaeology developed, more on a global scale. So what was happening in New Zealand in terms of maritime archaeology? Maritime archaeology started to get going around the early 90s through community groups, just people with a passion with maritime heritage, history, particularly exploring shipwrecks. It was sort of starting to be developed through Kelly Tarleton, unfortunately passed away unexpectedly in the 80s. But word of mouth is he was attending professional conferences overseas and starting to bring back ideas, training, and how we actually look at underwater sites. So that sort of kick-started things here. We've got two groups actually still going, and that's the Underwater Heritage Group. They're based up in Northland, but they tend to do projects around the country. And also MANS, so the Maritime Archaeological Association of New Zealand, based in Wellington. And they've also got a conservation lab down there as well. But both groups are active in the field, exploring our maritime heritage. And also, we've got an international body, AMA, the Australasian Institute of Maritime Archaeology. And I'll just mention one other, too, which is GERT, reasonably new to the scene in the last couple of years, but born out of Australia, run by Dr Andy Viduka. And he's really trying to engage the public in doing quick surveys, getting people to adopt a shipwreck site 
and then conducts a photogrammetry along with some underwater note-taking to examine and just record that shipwreck site and then from there just build up a baseline and a picture of how the site's been changing. So he's had divers adopt the Rainbow Warrior shipwreck. So there's actually a photogrammetry or 3D digital model online that people can now interact with. So yeah, just getting more and more people involved into interacting with the underwater heritage. So at what point in New Zealand did we start getting people like you who are specifically trained in maritime archaeology? probably the last sort of decade or so and that's with people coming back with knowledge education skill sets in this field and how we can then approach our own sites because every country sort of has different site types too so that will influence the way in how we look at sites how we record them it is developing and while it's a relatively new discipline globally it's very new in New Zealand A lot of archaeological sites, records that I've read tend to stop at the sea, where I see that potentially it would be useful to do an underwater survey because how does that site extend out in the water? And above all, we're an island nation. You know, we've got maritime in our blood. This is how most of us got here up until the introduction of aircraft. It was the only way to get here. And it's not just people, but ideas, technologies, exports. We need to really embrace maritime archaeology in New Zealand and the sense of just understanding our maritime heritage. Mm. I know you actually did some commercial maritime archaeology in Australia. Can you tell me what that is? So I've pretty much worked as a consultant in maritime archaeology in Australia because it's just at the moment that's where the work is. They're hot on it. They recognise the need for it in terms of development and where Maritime archaeology can really add value to the place's history. So a lot of the clients will be port authorities, local councils doing wharf extensions, even historical groups sometimes engage with us to explore maybe a shipwreck in a river or something that's more local to them. So anything that interacts with that water environment, you go out, survey the site, understand what is there, and then write up an assessment or a report based on the proposed works. You're looking at how the work might impact the archaeological sites, how you'd mitigate against impacting them. You try and promote preservation, work with the client. And I was fortunate enough to actually work on two very remarkable sites, one being one of Australia's earliest jetty sites in a river, in the Hawkesbury River outside of Sydney. And we did an excavation there. It was a 10-week excavation. And we've got a range of artefacts from Aboriginal stone tools right through to modern day fish hooks. It was just a fantastic cross-section of looking at a couple of thousand years. And the other one was excavating what is Australia's earliest built ship. I was on the foreshore in Sydney. Mm -hmm. Are the opportunities for that type of consultant maritime archaeology work in New Zealand? There's no reason the same can't happen here. There's no excuse now because there are people here with the skill set to do it. I think to clients, they should be aware that, okay, well, we're dealing with a marine-based site, therefore we should engage with an expert in that field because ultimately they're running a risk commercially doing that project. They don't want to destroy an archaeological site because it's illegal, but they need an expert to understand what sites they might encounter. We have a question from a kid, and this is one that's actually from my son, Eric, who's six, when I told him about this podcast. He said, 
how good at diving do you have to be <laughs> to be a maritime archaeologist? Yeah, good question. So when you're dealing with archaeological sites, you do have to be good because obviously you don't want to damage the site. So think about floating above a shipwreck. You don't want your fins to knock some timber, break a bolt, because it's going to destroy that potential interpretation. And also it might affect just future preservation for other divers to enjoy it. As a diver, your individual skill set needs to be relatively good in terms of buoyancy, fin kicks, just being spatially aware. But of course, that comes with training and practice. And the only way you can do that is just by getting in the water. I'm not saying you have to be an expert to access any of these sites. I encourage everyone to access them as much as they can. But of course, there's two sides to this. So you have that recreational diving, and then you have the commercial side where there's a bit more <laughs> of an approach to health and safety. Generally, their class is construction, so they up the apparatus in which you have to use. I would be using, in my commercial setting, a hard hat, and also then you're in communication with your supervisor. You can actually switch off in terms of monitoring your ear and then just put all your brain energy into looking at the rec site or looking at the jetty site. And so it's a bit more task focused. So is that via a radio or? Yeah, you'd have this cord called uh, umbilical cord for good reason. So you're tethered to the surface, but within that there's multiple hoses. So one would be your ear. Another is called a pneumo, which the dive supervisor will use to check your depth but also you can use it to blow air into lift bags to lift certain things up to the surface. So it's quite a useful little hose, that one. And another one is your comms cable. So you'll be able to talk to your supervisor or the acting director of archaeology and what you're finding, send back any observations, measurements. And then another one is just a generic cable. Sometimes that would just help as a safety. You wear a harness underwater and then you're not going anywhere. I think ultimately it just comes down to the site that you're accessing, the tasks that you might want to achieve, so whether it's excavation or just a basic survey, and then, again, having that safety built in, so dive with a buddy, check your gear. Thank you so much, Kurt. That's just been so interesting, and it sounds like such an amazing area of archaeology that has so much potential to grow and for new things to be discovered. Sure does, yeah. No, thanks, Rosemary. Thanks for having me. No worries. And we're going to do another episode on a specific community science project you've done on the HMS Buffalo Rex. So we'll hear from you again. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kurt, for that really interesting discussion about maritime archaeology. We'll be talking to him again in our next episode about the HMS Buffalo Project. This podcast is a joint production by Heritage New Zealand Pohiri Tonga and the New Zealand Archaeological Association. If you enjoyed it, mention it to your friends who are interested in archaeology or New Zealand history, and you can check out our previous episodes as well. Ka kite, bye.